Again, welcome to Freedom. It's great to see you here on Palm Sunday, and I want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Great to have you be a part of uh, Freedom Online. Uh, We are in a series right now where we have uh, been marching through John's Gospel and asking the question, what did Jesus do, not what would Jesus do? We just realized that we're not going to know what Jesus would do in our situations today unless we're really well acquainted with the Jesus of Scripture. And so today uh, we're diving into John chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. And I'll tell you that today we're going to be beginning with what I think is just a very fundamental question that probably along the way you have asked this in some shape or form. And it really boils down to this. The question I want us to wrestle with today is what kind of life is it that really pleases the Lord? When you think about the different ways that you could live your life and live out your faith, what's the version of it that really makes Jesus smile and just take great pleasure in you? I want you to think about that for a minute. Is it the person who is just uh, always into Bible studies and they're at the church all the time and they're always just reading and studying and memorizing and going to the next study? Is, Is it that person? Or is it the person who's always busy, serving, 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 going, 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 always got to be doing something for somebody else in Jesus' name? Is it the busy person? Is it the person who loves to just be out there on the streets, on the corner, witnessing and preaching and just, you know, little strangers and asking them, do you know Jesus and, and giving them the word? Is it that person? Is it the person who's just all about taking care of the poor and and giving big gifts and raising money to help other people? Is that who it is that that really pleases the Lord? Or is it the person who's just always into the next big worship thing and they're always fired up about whoever's in revival and whoever's got something special going on and they're always going from church to church to just get in on the, you know, the glory spout, wherever it is for that week. Is that the person that's pleasing to God? Are you with me? Are you following me? Do you ever just wonder, who is it that Jesus just looks at and goes, I love it because they get it? It's a question worth asking, isn't it? We're going to look at a story this morning that on the surface of it, we're really tempted to read it and go, well, why did that even make it in the Bible? Of all the incredible things that Jesus ever taught and did, why did this little story ever make it in the Bible? And what we're going to see is it is so vitally important because actually this story answers the question of what kind of life really pleases the Lord? What way of living makes Jesus smile? We're going to read a couple of different versions of the same story, which finds its way into all four Gospels. Other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, hardly anything is recorded by all four writers. This little story gets told four times. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Just let me set the stage. This is during the week leading up to Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. We're not completely sure. This is either Saturday or Monday, so it's one side or the other of Palm Sunday. And Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Every day during the week leading up to his arrest, Jesus is going to be in the heart of Jerusalem. He's going to be in the temple courts, preaching, teaching, and healing people uh, right after he goes in and cleans house. But every night, he makes the journey back across the Kidron Valley over to Bethany, and he's spending every evening with his close friends, 
the three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And there's a fourth relative. We don't know if this is another brother, cousin, uncle, or what, but uh, uh, the other one is Simon. And so they're throwing a special dinner in honor of Jesus. And then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Well, I reckon so. You pour out 16 ounces of perfume. You think you might could spell that? And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why was it this perfume sold for 300 denarii, that is for 300 days' wages, for a full year's wages, and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. You, you get a little bit of a sense of what a peculiar thing it was that Jesus selected Judas as one of the twelve because he didn't just go bad at the last minute. He had had impure motives and had been a crook all the way through. He probably volunteered to be treasurer for the, the disciples. He carried the money bag because he would just dip into it and put some in his own pocket all along. And seeing what this lady had done pouring out what could have been a gift sold for the equivalent of twenty or $30,000 today. He's thinking, rats! Missed out on that one. But he's got to cover that in spiritual talk. What a terrible waste. We could have sold that. And, well, we could have given the money to the poor. Yeah, right. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, uh, I'm going to flip over quickly and uh, read just Mark's account because you always get a little bit extra when you, if anything that John records that's also in any of the synoptic gospels. So I'm going to read you very quickly uh, Mark 14, 3 and following to give you Mark's version of the same story. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar. And poured it on his head. That's a significant little piece in the story. She didn't just work the lid off of this thing, this long neck bottle. She snapped it off, clearly showing, I'm fixing to just pour out all of it. I'm not going to need the lid. I'm about to lavish everything in here on Jesus. This isn't an oops. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? Other translations just simply say, why this waste? Everybody say waste. Yeah, you need to underline that word. That's so much of what this story is about. Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Oh, it's gone a step further. At first, they're just judging her in their hearts. And then they start murmuring to, to one another about, you know, what is she doing? How ridiculous. I mean, how much is she going to pour on him? Finally, Judas speaks up and goes, why this terrible waste? And the next thing you know, they're all just jumping in on her. Mary, that was so foolish. You could have done something better with that. Why are you doing this? What were you thinking, woman? Scolding her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done 
will also be told in memory of her. That last line needs to ring in our ears. I mean, you think of all the things that Jesus ever did, experienced, said, and this is the one moment in his ministry when it's like he snaps his fingers and goes, hey, wake up, wake up, pay attention to what's going on here, because I want you to understand this thing that just made you all so angry is so important. Everywhere the gospel goes, this story gets told. We need to rewind when we run across something like that in the scriptures and go, oh, wait a minute. When Jesus calls time out and says, I want you to understand something is going to get paired with the gospel throughout all of history. There's a story going to be told with the gospel and it's the story of what just happened in this room. I want to understand what just happened in that room. If Jesus in that moment realizes something so critical, so important, what could be so big and important that's happened here? I mean, on the surface of it, it seems so simple. Jesus' good friends are having a, a dinner party, a dinner banquet in honor of him. And in the middle of the banquet, as things always seem to go when he's over at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house, Martha's just busy, 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 whipping up another casserole, bringing out another dish. And in the middle of her serving and cooking... Here's Mary just can't take her eyes off of Jesus. And something just moves on her heart and, and she goes into her part of the home. And there's this one thing that she has of great value. And it's been suggested and probably rightly so that uh, this family was likely not a wealthy family. The fact that Martha is serving at dinner is a good indication. They're not being catered to by hired servants that when the family itself is serving itself, that's usually a very common family. And understand that common families in this period of time didn't tend to ever have much uh, money that you could hold in your hand or put in your pocket. They, they mostly dealt in commodities. You know, you, you just, you traded things out. And you didn't tend to put money in the bank. Usually if you, if you banked anything, it would be in the form of a commodity. And so for Mary, the one thing of greatest value that she owned was an alabaster jar holding 16 ounces of pure nard, a, a, a very, very expensive perfumed oil. Now, it seems very odd to us that a poor family, that somebody would own something so valuable. I mean, literally be worth today the equivalent of like at least twenty or $30,000. But you have to understand that was in ancient times, that would be a very practical expression of, of your savings account. This would be like your life savings. You wouldn't carry around a bank book. You would, you'd buy something of great value that could be contained in a small space and you'd protect that. This would be her life savings. This might have been her dowry. This, this is the most precious thing that she has. And on this particular night, her heart is just moved with her love for Jesus and, and just wanting to lavish on him her love for him. And she goes and she breaks out this thing that is her most valuable prized possession and she snaps the top off of it, breaking the neck. And she begins to anoint, if you read all four of the accounts, you'll see that she begins to anoint the head of Jesus with this wonderfully scented oil. And, and she drops to her knees and she begins to now anoint his feet with that. And she winds up just pouring out every bit of what she had in the, 
in the container there. And, and now, of course, you can just picture the oil just dripping off of Jesus' hair and, and running off his feet and onto the floor. And, and now, you know, everybody's just stopped and staring at her. And, and Jesus, uh, Mary seeing the, the excess that's on Jesus just on her knees now, she just begins to wipe the excess with her own hair. By the way, Jewish women wouldn't let down their hair in public. They were supposed to always be, you know, everything hidden away and tucked in. And it's just this beautiful picture of just holy, loving disregard. Like, I don't care who's looking. I don't care what they think. I don't care what they say. She is just pouring out her all at the feet of Jesus. And in an ultimate act of humility, just wiping the excess with her own hair. And while this is going on, people are judging her and talking about her and scolding her until Jesus just shuts that down. What are you doing? Why are you scolding her? She's the only one in the room who seems to have a clue what's going on. What she has done is a beautiful thing, and you don't get to take that from her. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. And oh, by the way, only one person ever got to do that. And the only other thing he says is, you just remember this, everywhere the gospel goes, Mary's story goes with it. Now in this series, we've been asking a couple of fundamental questions. First of all, what did Jesus say and do before we begin to massage that and work all kinds of deep meanings out of it? Just what did he say? What did he do? And then from that... Okay, what could we learn from what Jesus said and did? So five things that I want us to backtrack and consider that Jesus said or did in this passage and then some lessons that hopefully we can learn from that, one above all others. First of all, we learned that Jesus spent quality time with close friends as he prepared for the cross. That is not coincidence. Jesus could have stayed in Jerusalem I mean, he's going to spend his waking hours in Jerusalem. He's going to spend a lot of hours going back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem. But he's making a concerted effort to be with the people who were his inner circle of friends during the most critical week of his life. Second truth that we notice uh, is that Jesus took pleasure in Mary's wasteful outpouring. While everybody else is grumbling, fussing, and scolding, Jesus is just letting it happen. I mean, wouldn't you agree this has got to be like one of the most awkward moments at a, at a dinner banquet that you could ever imagine? I mean, when's the last time you were sitting at a really nice dinner with lots of guests and somebody busts in with uh, whatever the hottest perfume of the day is, the most expensive perfume, and just begins to pour it out on the guests of honor? That's got to feel like a pretty weird moment. Are you with me? I mean, don't you think that feels pretty strange? Don't, don't you think that if you're there, at least in your heart, you're siding with the disciples going, Mary has lost it. She's had a little too much wine to drink or something because this is wacky. And they're all frustrated. And here's Jesus just letting it happen. And if you look at him closely, he looks like he's enjoying it. What's up with that? Well, Jesus made it really clear. He felt honored by what was going on. He welcomed this, quote, wasteful outpouring by Mary. The third thing we notice from Jesus is that he praised the timeliness of Mary's actions. I mean, when he's setting the matter straight, what he says would offend some people. 
You know, the argument is, oh, such a terrible waste. We could have, we could have given this money to the poor. And Jesus just calls that out for what it is. <laughs> for the poor? Let me just remind you, you'll have the poor with you always. And if you are so concerned with the poor, you can take care of them every day for the rest of your life, is essentially what he's saying. Can I just go ahead and give you a little tip? When religious people disagree with how money is being spent, they'll always use this as their hyper-spiritual response. Oh, well, you could have done something better with that money. I mean, after all, you could have helped somebody. You could have done something for the poor. That's always the, the spiritual trump card when somebody may not have a heart for the poor in the least. Oh, let us do something for the poor. Jesus is essentially saying, yeah, right. You are so burdened about the poor. You'll have the poor every day for the rest of your life. Let's see what you do with those days. But today you have a unique opportunity. And Mary didn't waste this opportunity. She's done something that no one else would do. And she has done it just ahead of time for my burial. Think about what's going to unfold in the next week. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are going to try and, and uh, embalm Jesus' body, prepare it for burial. But it's going to be too late in the day on Friday. Sabbath starts when the sun sets, and they're not going to be allowed to do any of that. They have to get his body in the grave before the sun sets. So they don't have time to take care of his body. All of the other women who have followed Jesus watch all that's going on. And if you read all the gospel accounts, particularly Luke's account, you see they trailed the handling of Jesus' body all the way to the tomb, watched to see that it got tucked away, and they went back and made a plan. We're going to go get everything together, and we're going to come. We're going to anoint his body and do all the right stuff for his burial. And sure enough, on Sunday morning, they're going to come back with a load of all the spices and oils to do that. But guess what? They don't get to. Why? Because there was one time that the time was right to do this thing. And only Mary recognized it. Only Mary acted in time. There, there are many things in life where timing matters. This is one of those times. Jesus praised the timeliness of Mary's actions. The fourth thing we notice is that Jesus bore an unmistakable fragrance because of Mary's outpouring. That's about the nicest way we could put it, isn't it? I mean, they have blown up the whole house with sweet smell. You can smell Jesus all over the house. We'll come back to that. And then the fifth thing is that Jesus forever linked Mary's actions with the gospel. Wherever the gospel goes from now on, this story gets retold. So now let's take a moment and unpack each of these five thoughts and maybe what they mean for us today. What can we learn from what Jesus said and did? Well, first of all, we can learn that we need a few trusted friends who will stand with us through hard times. Don't you know it? If Jesus, the sinless, all-powerful Son of God, needed his friends to get through the hardest week of his life, how much more do you and I need some people that we can count on when we face the difficulties of life? Now, that may seem like the most obvious thing that I could say today, and yet we need to understand we live in a time where one of the enemy's main tactics is to isolate us. He, he wants to get you in a position where you think you have plenty of friends, but when you face the moment of crisis, you'll be isolated. And he's good at doing that. He gives us great opportunities to have a couple of different layers of sort of pseudo-close friends. 
First of all, there are all those people that we are casual acquaintances with that we can say, oh, well, these are my work friends and these are my friends from school and these are my friends from the neighborhood and these are my church friends. When in fact, so many times what we mean is we know each other's names and we say hello to one another. And during the meet and greet time, I'll walk across the aisle and shake their hand and say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. How are you? But the truth of the matter is we've never set foot in each other's homes. We don't know beans about what's going on in each other's lives. And I don't know that you could pay us to be honest with one another about our greatest struggles and and we'd fess up to it. That's not meaningful friendship. That's acquaintances. And then we've got this next level of friends and those who are big time in social media. Oh, they love racking them up. They're Facebook friends. They're, they're, uh... Snapchat buddies, you know, we, we're connected. We, we click on each other's things and we, we like one another. Let me ask you, when your kids, you're in crisis because your kids are doing things that may absolutely destroy their lives. How much is a Facebook like going to help you get through the next week? When you're facing a real crisis... When you're in a bind, you're in a financial bind and you're about to lose your house, how many likes is it going to take to get you out of that hole? When you get a diagnosis from the doctor that suddenly everything looks like it may turn upside down, how many of those casual acquaintances or Facebook friends or or shared things on Facebook, how many of those are going to get you through? We all know the answer. There aren't enough of those things on earth to get you through. And we can wax spiritual and say, oh, all you need is Jesus in those times. But I want to tell you, Jesus needed friends in those times. Jesus modeled for us what we need. Yes, we need Jesus. And you know what else we need? We need some people who have got Jesus in them, loving us through those times, walking us through those times, holding on to us through those times. And they won't just come out of the woodwork. In fact, in hard times, some of them disappear into the woodwork because they don't know how to help through hard times or they realize they really are just acquaintances. You have to work at this. You have to be intentional about this. Jesus didn't just one day discover, wow, I'm close friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I'm just tight with them. No, Jesus was intentional. And I know we love to make excuses for how we live our lives, don't we? Life's just so busy in the 21st century. There's just so much to do. Who has time anymore for the, the way we used to do things? I mean, I think about how I grew up. I was, I was laying in bed thinking about this last night. How much time was spent in folding chairs on the front porch growing up? Just some of y'all are thinking you're 112 years old. But some of y'all are old enough to remember what I'm talking about. Sunday dinner, you'd always eat with other people, people that you loved, people that you cared about, people that would go down in the ditch for you. And you didn't leave when dinner was over. That's when you went out to the porch and you just listened and you just shared and you just enjoyed one another. There was something better about those times. There was something significant about those moments. And we live at such a fast, hectic pace that it's like, oh, I don't know if we really got time to go to lunch with anybody today. And we surely aren't going to sit down and 
just spend part of the afternoon getting to know one another. We have to return to a way of life that says relationships are important. And you don't have to have a hundred of them. In fact, you can't service a hundred of them. You need a real tight circle. Even within the twelve, Jesus had three. And outside of the twelve, he had three. He had some very close friends that he could count on. And in his most difficult week of his life... Every night he went and had dinner with them. Every night he stayed with them because he needed the support. And you're going to have times in your life you need that. And you can't wait till those times to decide, I think I need to look for some new friends. We've got to be intentional and pursue godly close friends. You with me? Solomon said a friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need, and a real friend sticks closer than a brother. We all need those. The second truth worth remembering from the story is that a life fully wasted on Jesus is a life pleasing to God and filled with His power. While all the disciples are murmuring and scolding and saying, Why this waste? Jesus is smiling, and I just picture He's just nodding His head going, I know there's at least one person in the room who gets it. Now, I said when we read the passage, waste is the operative word, and it is. What does it mean to waste? What what is it when you waste something? Well, it means that you gave more than was called for. You gave more than something was worth. When we leave here today, if you should choose to go across the parking lot to McDonald's and order four Happy Meals for the family, and if you give $100 and say, here, McDonald's just deserves to keep $100 for four Happy Meals, I want to tell you, you wasted some money. Because you gave more than it was worth, regardless of what your toy is in your box. You have wasted Because what you got in return did not measure up to what you gave. That's what waste is all about. It's it's an uneven transaction. Oh, we need to stop and think what the disciples have said. They don't realize what they have said. Mary, you just took your, your most valuable possession and you just poured it out on Jesus, what you're giving is so much greater than anything in return. What they're saying is, Jesus isn't worth what just got poured out on Him. That's the implication. You see, that's the only way this is a waste. Well, rest assured, you give yourself totally to Jesus. I mean, truly. You yield all of who you are, your plans, your career, your resources, your relationships. You give that all to Jesus. I can guarantee you there will be people in the world who look at you and say, what a waste. You could have done so much more. You could have you could have been so much more. You just wasted yourself on all this Jesus and Christian stuff. The really scary part is I'll guarantee you, I know this firsthand. You totally Waste yourself on Jesus and there will be Christian friends, people in the church who will shake their head at you and go, what a, what a waste. I just don't get it. Why did they do that? It just, it doesn't make sense. Because there will be moments where you do things for the Lord where it looks like on the surface of it. We, we think so much in the natural and we'll think, hmm, that's just a waste. But we need to reframe the whole thing, don't we? We need to realize that in order for something to be wasted, it means we gave more than, than what was due. 
begs the question, what does Jesus do? What is Jesus worth? Well, in Mary's estimation, there's her life and her resources and what she has to bring. And then there's Jesus. And she's figuring whatever she could lavish on him, there's no way she could lose in that transaction. When Jesus is that worthy, nothing's wasted on him. Since Jesus' life on earth, I don't know of, I mean, we can't see it from God's perspective, but from, from where I sit, I don't know of any human being who's had more impact on the course of history for good than the Apostle Paul. I mean, we could stack others up to him, but Paul would stack up pretty well, don't you think? The world, in large part, knows who Jesus is outside of Palestine, in large part because of what Paul did. Paul was one who knew very well what it is to waste your life on Jesus and pleasing Him. In Philippians 3, he talks about this. He's opened the chapter by talking about the things that he used to value. The things that had just been of so much importance to him, being a Jew and keeping the law and being honored and recognized that he was a Pharisee, that he was as good a Jew as you'd ever find, that he had always kept the law. And then he goes on to say, at one time, these things were important to me. But because of Christ, I decided they are worth nothing. Not only these things, but now I think that all things are worth nothing compared with the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, you hear what he's doing. He's making the same comparison. Here's my life. Here's my righteousness. Here's who I was as a Pharisee and a leader. Here's all the stuff I could stack up. And I finally come to the point of realizing all that I could stack up over here. It's nothing. It's not this high. It's not this high. It's right down here. And then here's Jesus. And if I'm having to decide, what all am I going to give up to have Jesus? He says, it's, it's nothing. It's like dung that I'm giving in exchange for getting Jesus. And I mean, he's just on a roll. He said, because of Christ, I lost all these things. And I know that they are worthless trash, dung. All I want now is Christ. All I want is to know Christ and the power that raised him from death. And oh, did he evermore know it. He walked in that power. He walked in so much power that people would line the streets to see if his shadow would just pass over them because there was so much power that emanated from his life. A surrendered and wasted life totally given to Jesus is the life that God will pour out his power through. I mean, it got so ridiculous, the amount of power that was on his life. People wanted to get hold of handkerchiefs that had touched Paul because healing power would emanate from them. That is power. The power is tied to that kind of just total waste, total surrender. I don't know if you'll recognize the name or not, but Robert Moffat, he was a Scotsman, a Congregationalist. He was a follower of Jesus, but he was a nobody in Scotland in the early 1800s. He would go on to be a missionary and make a huge difference in the world, but when he was just a nobody, he was sitting in the Congregationalist service one day when he was moved by the Spirit of God and by the message that day. And when they went to receive the offering and the ushers are bringing the offering plate around, they came to Moffat and he was just so overcome with 
with Jesus and how worthy Jesus is and wanting to to give himself to the Lord. And when they came to receive an offering from Robert Moffat, he looked at the ushers and he said, I don't have any money at all. I don't have a, I don't have a penny that I can give you, but would you, would you lower the plate? Would you, would you bring it a little lower, a little lower until they have it on the ground? And Robert Moffat got up and he stepped into the plate and he said, I don't have any money to give, but I want to give myself, I want to give my whole life to Jesus. And when Robert Moffat's life was done, South Africa and Botswana had been changed because the gospel had swept through those nations. We think of of a great name like Robert Livingston. You know, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And we imagine they sort of came out of nowhere. Livingston was Moffat's son-in-law. Great faith so many times gets passed from generation to generation. Moffat is the first one who ever translated the Bible into Satswana, the language that opened up that part of the African continent. But you see, these great, powerful moves of God, they start in humble moments like this, when a, a man says, I don't, I don't have anything to give, but I want to give myself. I just I want to waste the rest of my life on Jesus and whatever he would do with me. That's a life pleasing to God, and that's a life that gets filled with the power of God. A third truth is very simple, and it's just this. The sooner our lives are surrendered to God, the greater our value and kingdom impact in the world. It's a trap to believe that one day I'm going to get around to really giving myself to God. And a lot of us have stepped in that trap somewhere along the way. So many times... The thought of becoming a Christian will just say, I know that's the truth and I know I need to do that and I'm going to do that one of these days. But there's some things I want to experience and do first. Or we'll become believers, but we'll know that we're a far cry from having put ourselves in the offering plate. We, we, we know that we're just giving God a little token, a little part of our lives. And, but one day I'm going to really surrender myself. And part of what we need to wake up to is the realization that there's a time factor involved. Jesus loves young and old coming to him, but from a real practical standpoint, an 18-year-old surrendering himself or herself fully to Jesus has much greater kingdom impact than the 80-year-old completely surrendering themselves to Jesus. It's just the way it works. You know, it, if I wait until tomorrow... To surrender myself to Christ. I've got one less day to have kingdom impact in the world. Today is the day. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, so it is as the Holy Spirit says, today listen to what he says. Don't be stubborn as in the past when you turned against God. Somebody say today. Today is the day. It's why Paul said, behold, today is the day of salvation. The only day you can respond to the voice of the Spirit of God is today. You can't do it yesterday. You can't do it tomorrow. You've got to do it today. He is the eternal now. The fourth truth. A broken and surrendered life always carries the sweet aroma of Jesus. You know, in this story, there is a sweet smell that just begins to fill every room of the house. John speaks of it. It comes from two places, Jesus and Mary. Nobody else is giving off the sweet aroma, just two. 
just Jesus and Mary. Jesus has got it dripping off of his head and hair and off of his feet. And Mary's just got it all over her by now. It's all over her hands. It's all in her hair. I can only imagine how much it's on her clothes by the time she's down on her face wiping his feet with her hair. Two people giving off a sweet aroma that just fills the whole house. By the way, that, that's the ultimate equation. Jesus plus one. Je- Jesus plus any one person can completely fill the house with his aroma. We, we call it a sweet aroma. We can call it a lot of different things. It, it's hard to know exactly how to explain it. But what we're talking about is in the same way that a sweet smell of perfume can fill a whole room and you didn't see it get squirted. You didn't you don't feel it. You can't see it in the air. And yet there's just some mm, sweet effect that it just has on you. Isn't it amazing how how certain smells do that to you? I mean, think about when you walk in a place. And you didn't even realize, you weren't even thinking you were the least bit hungry. And you smell, mmm, fresh bread, bacon, chicken frying. Woo! I mean, suddenly, it it starts affecting more than your your nose, doesn't it? Suddenly, you start feeling something all over. Jesus has that effect. The aroma of Jesus creates a holy hunger in people. It does. And Paul said, the broken and surrendered follower of Jesus carries that aroma. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, God uses us to spread his knowledge everywhere like a sweet-smelling perfume. Our offering to God is this, that we are the sweet smell of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being lost. You know what he said there? He said, it doesn't matter if they're lost or they're saved, they can still smell it. it. It's this irresistible effect. You get around somebody who's broken, poured out, surrendered, wasted on Jesus, and they don't have to preach to you. In fact, they're not nearly as prone to in my experience. But there's just something that they give off. And it stands in such sharp contrast to the holier-than-thou holy roller. You all know what that looks like. That person, they got to bowl you over with their knowledge of the Scripture and just, just saying something spiritual all the time. How are you doing? Oh, I'm just blessed. Just blessed and proud to be here. How are you today? You, you know, they're just, whatever goes on. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. you got four flat tires. Well, praise the Lord. They're only flat on the bottom. You know, just, just you want to go, Seriously? Is that who you are? You, I mean, you can just read it like a book. It's like, I hear the talk, but I don't feel Jesus when I'm around them. feel more like a vampire sucking something out of me. It's just, I, you know, you get around Jesus people that have that sweet aroma, and it's like you, you just leave more filled up because being around them is to be in the presence of Jesus. We had a first-time guest last week. I, I love encounters like this. I was talking with her after the service. Had never met her before. And she just said, oh, I, I just want to tell you. When I walked in the door of this place last week, had never been here before. And when I came in, I felt it. There is an anointing in this place, in this fellowship. I felt Jesus when I walked in this place. It ain't the building. We all get it. It's not the building. Jesus doesn't inhabit buildings. He inhabits people. Now that blesses and encourages me when somebody can say, I 
I felt it. It's like I smelled it when I walked in here. I smelled the sweet aroma of Jesus in lives broken and wasted poured out on him. Fifth and final truth. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not just to satisfy sinners, but it's to satisfy God. You may say, well, what does that have to do with the story? Remember the last thing we said from the story is that Jesus forever linked Mary's actions with the gospel, which begs the question, what's going on here that this story is always supposed to be told along with the gospel? That's supposed to happen because this story is a picture of the goal of the gospel. Let me say the last truth again. The ultimate goal of the gospel isn't just to satisfy sinners, but it's to satisfy God. Now let's take a moment and unpack this. What do we mean when we say the gospel? The word gospel means good news. The good news is very clearly that Christ died for our sins. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel that saves you is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. By this gospel you're saved. So that is the good news. We, we, if we ask the question, okay, so what was the point of the gospel? We're real prone to say, well, the point of the gospel was to get lost people saved so they don't go to hell, they go to heaven, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the... The short version of our answer to the question, what's the point of the gospel? It gets dirty, rotten sinners who were headed for hell, out of hell, and into heaven. And I want to tell you, that was not and is not the primary goal of the gospel. It certainly is a secondary goal, and it's an important one for us. But we need to understand, in the first place, the gospel wasn't for us to satisfy us. The gospel was designed to satisfy God. Oh, we need to think about that. Still love the opening line of Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you. It never has been. It's always been about God. And as much as God loves us, the gospel isn't first and foremost about us. It is about God. We, to understand the point of the gospel, you have to understand the purpose of God in creation. God made you and me because he longed to just have a personal, intimate relationship with us. And we say, well, but we need the gospel to miss hell and get to heaven. Yeah, we do, and, and God cares about that. He wants to spare us so that we don't go to hell and that we do go to heaven. But we can do that through accepting the gospel and totally miss the point of the gospel. That the point of the gospel was to provide a way so that we could become the sons and daughters of God who just live in this incredibly close, intimate, personal relationship with God all the time. That's the goal of the gospel. That's why God made you. He didn't make you so you could be busy the rest of your life doing great things for Him. He didn't make you so that you could, could wipe out cancer or, you know, save the world from every other dread, disease, or, or poverty. It's not why He made you. He made you for an intimate relationship with Himself. And Mary gives us a picture of the, the point of the gospel lived out. In the Old Testament, the central place of prayer and worship was called in, in English the tabernacle. If you've been, grown up in church, you've heard about the tabernacle. It's the place, it's the Holy of Holies, it's where the Ark of the Covenant would be. It was the central place that people would come to pray. Now, if I ask you, well, what's the point of prayer? What is prayer? What do you do in prayer? We probably 
C is the most common answer. If we had everybody fill out a card and answer the question, well, what is prayer? We'd say, well, it's, it's talking to God and telling him what you need. It's, it's telling God what's on your heart. It's being honest with God. It's, you know, it's those things. And it, it includes that. But it's interesting when we get to the, to the heart of the matter and you look at the place of prayer for the people of God, they didn't call it the tabernacle. They called it the mishkan in Hebrew. The, the root word is there, there is shakan, which means to dwell, to remain. You see, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it was the place that was set apart for God himself to come and dwell and just remain there. But it wasn't just a dwelling place for God. The Mishkan was the place for God to dwell and for his people to come and dwell. And you see, the point of the Mishkan was not, oh, we've got to have this time where we go tell God our list of all the things we need for him to do because we want to make sure he remembers and does all this for us and all the people that we care about. We don't want him to forget anybody that's sick or in need this week. So we've got to remind him of these things. And we need answers on a couple of subjects. So we're going to put in some requests to see if he'll, he'll say something back in response to that. I want to tell you, that was not the heart of the Mishkan. The concept of Mishkan is God comes in and he takes up residence in this place and we have this incredible invitation to just come in and simply just dwell with him there. And Exodus tells us how on a daily basis at the tent of meeting, there would be this incredible thing that would happen that the, the glory cloud that, that sort of shrouded the incredible brightness of the glory of God that literally lit the way of, of the people of God every night. And it, it led them through the day and through the night that that glory would descend into the tent of meeting, into the Mishkan, and Moses and Joshua, his aide, would go in and they would just be there with God. They would just dwell and remain with God. Now, they wouldn't stay there all the time. But it says when Moses would leave the tent, you could tell he had been in the tent. Why? There was a radiance. You could just see it coming off of him. You see, the, the people who just spend time just dwelling with God, they have an aroma, they have a radiance, they have a, a presence of God about them that they carry with them everywhere they go. The answer to the question of what is prayer, oh, it involves talking to God and telling Him what's on your heart. and It's fine to petition Him for things. We absolutely should do that. It involves listening to God for answers to questions that we've got. That's really an important part of prayer. But I want to tell you the sweetest and most significant part of prayer is to just enter into the Mishkan. Just dwelling, being in the presence of God. I've noticed this thing and the last few years of my life, in my private time with the Lord, I talk a lot less in prayer. When it first started happening, it, it seemed weird and so right all at the same time. Like there's a part of my brain that's saying, but I've been taught all my life. I've got my 2959 plan. I've got my prayer calendar. I've got all these things I need to put before God. I, I need to be busier doing that. I'm not being good in my prayer time. And yet just in my heart. Something feeling so right of just spending more time just in his presence. 
And at first it was about, well, I just need to be quiet and listen and let him speak to me and tell me what I need for the day. And I'm so glad for when he does. But I want to tell you, there are more days in my life now where I enter into that time of just the dwelling of God. And I come away from it. And I can't tell you in two or three sentences, this is what God gave me today. I got a sermon to preach. Now, it's not that at all. I just come out and I just know I've been with God. It was good. In fact, sometimes that was better than just reading some great truth and some great teaching that informed my mind. It touched me at a deeper level because I've been in the presence of Jesus. Jesus said this story gets told for the rest of history because Mary throughout the Gospels is the one character who understands and embodies the concept of entering into the Mishkan of God. This isn't the first time we run into Mary. We've run into her again and again. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, who in Luke 10, on one of his many times of dropping by their home, Jesus drops in for an unannounced visit, and Martha goes into Martha mode. Ooh, there's so much to do. We've got to get busy. There's casseroles to make. There's cakes to bake. There's cleaning to be done. We've got to get busy, busy, busy. And Jesus sits down. I'm sure he's exhausted, but, but he's just so glad to be with his friends. And Mary knows about all the stuff that Martha's organizing and getting done, and she just cannot pull her away, herself away from Jesus is in the house. He's in my house. I just want to listen. I just want to be near him. Let's just be quiet and see what he says. And even when Jesus is just exhausted and doesn't feel like talking, let's just be quiet next to him. Let's just enjoy. We are next to Jesus. How oh, do you feel him? He's here. No, I, I hear noises now. I, I, I hear a racket. It's coming from the kitchen. It's Martha. She's banging the pots intentionally louder and louder. She's, she's whipping that whisk harder than ever. She's getting angrier by the minute. There's so much to be done. She keeps looking in at Mary, giving her the look like, you know, skunk eye. Like, Get in here and help me. Finally, she's just to the point, she's too mad to even speak to her sister. And she goes in and just says, Jesus, would you tell my sister to get in here and help me? That's what any busybody sister would say. And in response, Jesus says in Luke ten forty two, there is only one thing worth being concerned about. Everybody say one thing. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. What is it that Mary has discovered? Mary has discovered the point of the gospel. And the point of the gospel is that broken, self-centered, ordinary people like you and me, through Christ's death and resurrection, have an opportunity to enter into not only forgiveness and new freedom and new meaning in life, but to enter into this wonderful mystery of the Mishkan of God. That we get to just be in His presence. To listen for His voice. To experience His nearness. I want to tell you, it's not all about what you learn. Just being with Him and near Him transforms you.
And it's not all about blah, 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 blah. God, I need you to do, 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 do all these things. It's about learning to have a merry spirit and just saying, God, I just want to be near you. Jesus, I just want to know you. I've spent enough time being busy for you. And it doesn't mean that we shifted into neutral and we don't do things to serve the Lord. Certainly we need to serve the Lord. But at the heart of it all has to be this, this heart that says above everything else, I get it. Jesus loves a life that is totally surrendered to him and that just enjoys him. You remember the old quote? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That's a big stretch for some of us, isn't it? To just come to that place of, of not feeling like, oh, it's, it's so hard to find time to be alone with Jesus because I've got all these other important things that I need to do. I, I need to be working and I, I need to be doing things for God and for my family. I've got to be busy, busy, busy. It is the cry of Martha in us. Let's go get busy. Let's go make another casserole. Let's go, let's go work harder and do more. And yet there is the call of the Mary spirit saying there's one thing that trumps everything. Could we just be still in the presence of Jesus? Could we just take a little bit of time each day to just draw near to Him? And sure, tell Him what's on your heart. If you've got questions, ask Him. Spend some time in His Word. But don't miss the pure pleasure of having Jesus dwelling in your house. Enter into the dwelling. We read about the tent of meeting in the Old Testament and I think, how great it would have been. There's a tent of meeting at your house. He wants to descend from the glory of cloud into where you live. And He wants His sweet aroma to follow you wherever you go. But it's up to us. It's a life broken, poured out, and wasted on Him. It's a life that says He's worthy every day to be the top priority that I just spend time with Him and carry an awareness of Him throughout the day. Would you join me as we turn to Him together in prayer? God, we are so grateful for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus. For his life, for his ministry, for his teachings, for his love. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel and for the change that we experience when we respond, yes, to the gospel. But God, we don't want to settle for missing hell. We don't want to settle for a ticket to heaven. We want to know what it means to to live our lives in your dwelling place, in your presence. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would today just salt our souls and make us thirsty. Make us thirsty for more. Whether you're here in the room or watching and listening online, I, I want you to just consider what is it that the Spirit of God is saying to you today? Are you in a place that you've been considering what it means to trust Christ? Maybe you've been wrestling with that at an intellectual level or a heart level. I just want to remind you the Word of God is true. Today is the day of salvation. The fact that you're thinking about this and wrestling with it is clear evidence that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. And His invitation is a simple one. Say yes to Jesus, to the forgiveness and love and life that He has for you.
you want to do that, would you just in your heart pray a simple prayer of, of acceptance? And just, you don't even have to say it out loud with your lips, but in your heart just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness for my sins. I need you living in me. I need your spirit to change me. I know I can't clean up my own act enough. And so I'm asking you to cleanse me, forgive me, and make me new. Thanks for dying in my place, for rising from the dead. The best I know how, I'm giving control of my life to you. Now I want to tell you, if you prayed that from your heart, God heard and answered. And you have a fresh start in a new life. But you need to share that with somebody, the reality of what's happened. Now I know the truth is there are many others that we have trusted Christ for forgiveness a long time ago. But we are not living that life of abundance where the sweet aroma of Christ is on us. If that's where you are and you long for more, would you just be honest with God about that? Just to consider for a moment, what is there that you still can wrap your hands around or your heart around that you still hold on to, that you have been just afraid or unwilling to just waste on Jesus? Maybe it's your finances, your future, your plans, your career. Why don't you just in your heart right now as we're bowed together, just say, Jesus, today, I realize you are worth it. You are worthy, and I give you my life, my family. My future, I give you control. Father, I pray that today you would be pleased by the offerings that we bring. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move so deeply within us that there would be many hearts who would truly say, God, I want to put myself in the offering basket. More than anything I could put in an envelope, I want to give myself fully to you. Be glorified in me. We pray these things with expectant and grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand together with me. As always, we're going to just uh, have an open ministry time. And if you have a need in your life, if you need uh, prayer in relation to any things that we've talked about, or maybe you've just come with a, a hurting heart or wanting to return to God, or maybe you're in need of physical healing in your life or relational healing, there are people who would love to pray with you and for your counsel with you. So there will be folks scattered around the front as we just continue to sing and worship together.
thank you for what you have purchased with your blood. And as we enter into this holy week, we pray that you would grace us with just a special awareness of your presence, Lord, that you would be with us in every part of every day. We pray that in a fresh way we would experience your passion, your sacrifice, and the victory of your resurrection. And we pray these things with grateful hearts, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.